So I want to thank everyone for coming here. My name is Jim Clish from Lakefront Brewery. I'm one of the founders with my brother Russell, and I'm proud to say that we, through your fine help and the help here and our employees like Mitch uh, and support with my wife Joan, uh, have been able to survive 30 years on the brewery circuit. Wow. So we have seen something. Thank you. Feel free to hold your applause until the end. <laughs> well, I don't know if anyone's been to the brewery. Uh, certainly gone on the tour, and uh, you're pretty familiar with the whole shtick there. And as you uh, realize when you go on the tour, uh, we always start off with a beer. So I thought that'd be fitting to start out with a beer. And, and given the climate that we're in right now, we came out with our winter seasonal. And this is called Warm Front. So if we thought we'd be a little contrarian as far as the beer styles are concerned, uh, given this time of year, usually you see kind of heavier, uh, full body, darker beers, uh, higher alcohol. And this one's a little bit more crisp, uh, citrusy, comes with a bit of a uh, uh, tropical fruit flavor. So imagine you're in the tropics when you're drinking this. And, and seeing how we're going to be talking about hops today, that's one of the reasons why I wanted to start off with this, is because it, it shows you some of the flavors that you're going to get from hops. So for those of you that are home brewers or familiar with uh, brewing, and I'll be getting into hopping ratios later on, but uh, we start out with a boiling hop. That's usually what gives us the bitterness. And we use a Zeus there. It's a heavy alpha acid, and again, I'll go into that later on. That's going to give you a spicy uh, herbal flavors to it. And then mid-range hops, you know, for the flavoring and aroma are mosaic, and that's going to be more uh, earthy, floral, and fruity. And then we're going to finish with uh, dry hopping, uh, where we have mosaic and citrus. And, and with the citrus is where you'll get some of those tropical fruit notes that you're enjoying. So. For the geeks out there, this is 5.4% alcohol by volume, ABV, so that's not too uh, assertive. Uh, 34 IBUs, again, that'll be something I'll go into, international bittering units. So this is coming in on the low end, it's classified as a pale ale. And then 4.5% Plato. I'm having it set up where we're going to be going through a little bit of a continuum as far as our flavor profile. So. We have those hops there, and then um, it's they're not just out there to bitter beer. We want to give you a little bit of a background with it, with the malt. So we have some caramel malt, and you can see it's a light caramel color, uh, golden almost, and that kind of gives a little biscuity uh, caramel flavor as a background to balance out those hop notes. So uh, enjoy, enjoy, and once again, thanks for coming here. Um, I've been kind of intrigued by a recent theory, and that is called the drunken monkey theory. And, <laughs> and you've heard of it. Uh, but anyhow, if uh, you follow evolution, if you believe in evolution, millions of years ago, our forefathers, our ancestors, were the apes that were in the tree, and they were the type of apes who decided to eat rotten fruit. And that might be a little beneficial for them. So, you know, the fruit, they fell from the tree and uh, uh, it started to ferment. Anything will either rot or ferment. Um, when something's fermenting, it's creating alcohol because the, um, the, um, uh, 
the yeast that's causing the fermentation wants to protect itself from other things that want to eat the, those sugars, so they create alcohol uh, to sort of surround them and that prevents anything else from eating it. And uh, the adventurous uh, whatever uh, would come down from the tree because these are also the fruits that smelled a little bit more. He could pick it up when they're, they're there and decided to eat it. And because the fruit was fermenting, the, uh, uh, the calories were broken down a little bit, the sugars were a little bit broken down, so it, it gave them nutrition. And along with that, uh, they had the alcohol in them, so they acted as a little bit of an antibacterial, so it actually made it a little bit more healthy. So, um, it's not like they really would get drunk. There wouldn't be that much alcohol to cause uh, intoxication with the primate, but um, they maybe received a little bit of a warm glow. So let's just say that as evolution continues, this is the background for uh, the humans and that uh, we may be predisposed in our DNA to drink alcohol, and that, that certainly is what the history of uh, the, our civilization has been about, because if you look at beer alone, that's been around for about at least 5,000 years as far as most uh, recorded history. Uh, Mesopotamians or the Egyptians, about 3,000 BC, had some type of a beer that they would um, uh, use a, a fermented grain or a a malted grain to ferment and then end up drinking. And back in that time, hops probably did exist, but it existed in the wild. And they never really used hops uh, back then. Uh, they mostly took advantage of local fruits and um, spices and herbs, maybe some honey to uh, flavor their beer. Because you have to realize that if you have these grains that have been malted, they're probably going to be a little bit sweet, fairly coyingly sweet, and you needed some other type of flavoring to allow that to be uh, drinkable. So they um, would use a lot of uh, other types of herbs. And actually, when you look at the first recorded history of hops, it really didn't occur until uh, a gentleman by the name of Pliny the Elder came along and some of you might be familiar with the beer that's out there it's a double IPA from Russian River Pliny the elder was elder was a Roman and he was in their military and he was fairly um, uh, prolific as far as writing he did a lot of history of military histories but he also uh, did a natural uh, natural history book and he wrote it between uh, 74 and 75 AD. And it chronicled a lot of what was growing in that particular area. And that is the first recorded instance of hops being recorded, uh, growing out in the wild. So uh, that's where he came from. Uh, interest, he reached an interesting demise in that uh, during the eruption of Mount Vesuvius, he, he died uh, in that eruption. Um, some forensic uh, historians figured he had a heart attack. He wasn't really killed by the, uh, by the eruption or, or anything like that. But uh, apparently he had a lifestyle that uh, would have contributed to that. Uh. <laughs>
736 AD is the first uh, recorded uh, cultivation of hops. And uh, hops originally, as it is right now throughout history, has been used as a, as a medicinal type of a herb. It, it's bitterness, it has antiseptic and medicinal properties. And it wasn't uh, until 18, oh, sorry, 822 in northern France that a monastery started using hops to bitter their beer. They, they cultivated the hops and they use it. Uh, it didn't really happen in Germany until about 1150 to 1160 AD, and that happened in the Hallertaler region of Germany, probably uh, the northern Bavaria area. So um, up until then, like I said before, it was mostly used for uh, medicinal purposes. It, it's a great sedative, and I always, uh, it's known that uh, uh, that people have uh, would put hops in pillows to sleep on. It's been helped uh, sir, uh, um, solve insomnia. Um, it would relieve uh, menopause. It had a, uh, uh, a type of uh, estrogen in hops to deal with that discomfort. Uh, it was a phyto, phytoestrogen, estrogen-like substance was in there. Of course, it's, it's an anti-infection. It had dimethyl uh, vinyl uh, carbonyl in there. And it, um, and it makes it antibacterial. So moving ahead, um, hops started to be more used in beer, primarily because of this antibacterial and preservative aspect that it, it gave beer. But it meant a lot of resistance because at that time, again, just like in earlier years, uh, the, the Germans, the French, the, the British, they were all flavoring their beers with, again, local uh, spices and herbs and fruits, and they called it Gruet. That thing was called Gruet, and, and people liked their Gruet. They didn't really want to change. They didn't want to go to this bitter beer that had hops added to it. And so, um, one, because of traditional uh, purposes, they wanted to stay using the, the domestic, or what they've always done, uh, two, these are like hops being uh, antibacterial, that meant that the brewers could make beer that was less higher in alcohol. And so it was like a cheaper beer. And people didn't go along well with that at all because they wanted their strong, sweeter, spicier beers. And then um, another reason is that you had some money invested with the hop merchants that were there. And I'm, in, I'm sorry, with the, the spice merchants. And one of the big ones were the Catholic Church. And so they didn't want to see hops going in. And so I didn't, I didn't believe that until I was reading through this book on um, the hops from Germany. And um, it says here, in the 14th century, Bishop John of Liege in Utrecht complained to the German Emperor Charles IV that his tithe was being reduced by the use of a new herb called humulus lupulus, or hop. The bishop must have made a well-founded complaint, evidence of the considerable spread of the hop, because in 1364, the emperor allowed him to levy one penny on each barrel of hop beer to, as compensation for the loss he had sustained. So, it got to be a little controversial right there, and there's people that were using it were stepping on the toes of the establishment, 
and including the church. But I find it a little bit of ironic because a lot of the brewing that was going on was occurring in monasteries, actually, as I said before. The first use of hop was in a monastery, so I haven't been able to figure out why uh, the church, maybe it's just the administrators of the church were getting their money and so they were upset, but uh, a lot of the knowledge and a lot of the brewing were in the monasteries and they started using hops. Hops became more prevalent, the flavor, they were available, they're cheap, they preserved the beer. And in the, as many of us know, 1516 has passed the German or the Bavarian purity law followed by the German purity law which mandates that if you are only, if you're going to make a beer you can only use uh, malted barley I think there was some exception for malted wheat uh, water and hops and then once they understood yeast then uh, yeast came into the fold to the, they amended it for the yeast but that wasn't until about the 1800s so hops um, became established at that point and it is the major flavoring component that we have today. So. Tim? Yes. Next one? Next one. Let's do the uh, next one. Sure. So I've always realized a direct correlation between a full glass and attention span. So <laughs> keep that going there. The warm front. So Zeus uh, is the bittering hop that we had, and then that moves into the, the uh, flavoring, uh, and that's the mosaic, and that gives you earthy floral, floral. and then the cit uh, citrus, which is fruity and citrusy, and then dry hopping. So whirlpool is mosaic and citra, then the dry hopping is mosaic and citrus. Where you get with the mosaic and the citrus, you got tropical fruits. So hopefully you're picking up a little of those characteristics in there. And the next one is the Denali. The next one is the Denali. So we have a program at the brewery where we call it the SHOP. And SHOP is an acronym. It stands for single hop. So what we're doing is making a beer that just has one hop in there and that is the Denali hop and that's a relatively new hop uh, it has a nickname of Nuggetzilla because it is it's a hybrid hop with uh, that comes from the nugget hop and if you were to see this hop it's a huge long hop it has a lot of alpha acids or a lot of bittering components in it and uh, they'll give you pineapple uh, pine, so you might get a little resiny characteristic in that, and then also uh, a citrus. Uh, some hops are used for bittering, some are used for flavor and aroma, and some are dual purpose. This is considered a dual purpose hop. And the hop in here is uh, used in the boil, it's, it's used in the uh, strike or at the end of the boil, our whirlpool, and, I'll, and then also the dry hopping, which I'll which I'll get into there. So this one, it's a, it's, it's a moving up the uh, continuum. This actually is the highest one in alcohol. It comes in at seven percent. Uh, the IBUs, international bittering units, are 55. So you can compare that to the 35, 34 IBUs of the the warm front. 
and then the play-doh or the amount of specific gravity and at the, the thickness, the viscosity of the beer is 16, where the, uh, the warm front was 14.5. So a little bit more malt in there to back it up. The malt again is the a Munich malt, so that'll give you some nice residual sugars. You should get a little bit more of a body in that and then a little bit more of a darker caramel, caramel malt in the hops all the hour. So it's out now. Actually, you can purchase it here. <laughs> come, come often to Brew City and <laughs> Sorry, and drink it now, right? <laughs> okay. And this is style. Of and um, what are you doing? I don't like doing lectures. Uh, questions are fine. And even if you want to throw in a point that I'm not clarifying or get a little out of other insight, feel free. So yes, please. This like obviously more bitter than the last yeah. one. Is there a reason for that? that? Well, that's when it goes when I was talking about the Play-Doh because you might have more IBUs, more bitterness in there, but if you have more of a malt characteristic, that will oversee that or balance out that hop characteristic. So you're, you're quite correct. So just because it has high IBUs, um, you might, it might not taste that way. And I'm gonna be finishing with our, our fixed gear and that has a big alt, uh, uh, dark uh, flavor to it. But I mean, you could have barley wines that are really high hopped and it just seems like they're primarily sweet because of the amount of malt that you have in there. So it's, beer is kind of the yin and yang. Sweetness comes from the malt. The, the bitterness comes from the hops. And um, that's, again, one of the reasons why they've always wanted to flavor it, because malt by itself would almost be too cloyingly sweet to uh, consume on its own. Yeah, good question. Anyone else? Anyone else? So hops are established. And uh, biologically speaking, they are in the Cannabisee family, and um, if anyone has talked about hops much, you might hear that they are related to marijuana. And uh, the truth of it, the truth of that is that it's uh, perfectly true, and <laughs> that uh, the Cannabisee family, um, there, there's three divisions. One's a tree, that's the Celtus, and that's kind of the hackberry family. Then you have erect herbs. Those are cannabis. And then you have uh, twining herbs. And those are the humulus, humulus, lupulus, which are hops. So um, originally, they would classify plants just by the way the plant looked. And so this is resiny, and it has a palm leaf, just like marijuana. So. Because of the similarities, they thought that they were related. Then once they started understanding DNA, uh, late uh, 1990s, early 200, 2000s, um, they realized that the similarities between the hop DNA and the cannabis DNA, DNA was really close. And if you go online, there's all these websites that talk about how you can graft uh, um, uh, a marijuana plant on a hop vine. <laughs> and uh, I don't know why you want to do that, but. <laughs> but uh, they have, um, 
Both have terpenes, and those are the, the flavor molecules that you get in the, the lupinate, lupulous ass uh, glands, lupulin glands. So the hops, uh, hu uh, humulus lupulus, if you're talking about a European hop, humulus americanus, if you're talking about American hop, and they're dioecious, which means that they have both male and female plants. The hops that are used for making the cones are hops right now. Um, um, in, the, in the brewing industry are only sterile female plants. They don't want the plant to commit, to create seeds that detracts from them. There's no purpose for seeds in brewing. So they just want that flower. So this is a flower. It'll have more oils and resins in them. So hops, uh, they grow on trellises. Anyone ever see a hop farm? Ever been, been to a hop farm before? I, I never have. I mean, I've seen hops grow, but I've never been to a hop farm. So I've seen pictures of them. Yeah. There's one here, so you can see, see how much they're, they're like. Yes? Aren't they growing a lot of hops now in Wisconsin? They are. They are. Uh, more than they have before. Um, more than they've had in probably the last century. So there's, there's, about, three, there's about 300 acres uh, committed to hop growth right now. And I'll get into that a little bit later, but uh, Wisconsin was one of the hop, top hop-growing uh, regions in the United States for about a period of 10 years. So <laughs> not that much of a history, but you can see a hop farm here. So how dense they are, how big they are. And <coughs> they go 25, 35 feet high. And uh, generally the, the cones, so here I have a sprig of some really rare and hard to get and exotic plastic hops. <laughs> <laughs> Those are actually hard to get. I got them for a cost and I had a terrible time finding them. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we at the brewery always have them for tours and yes. prior to getting these, they were really cheesy. I was almost embarrassed to show them. But they grow on what's called a bine and then you have the cone and the, uh, the grow clockwise. Um, well, they're picked at the end of the summer. Uh, moisture content is about 75%. So usually when they're picked, uh, they're placed in a, a, a drying room, they're killed, and eliminate the moisture content to about 7%. So that helps with the, the preservatives. So there's a number of uh, different varieties that you get with hops. One is a whole leaf. Uh, the advantage of that is that it'll be a little bit more, and when you're when you're brewing with it, is that you get a little bit more flavor from it. The uh, bad part about it is they oxidize quick; they're not very stable. Uh, you put the leaves in the uh, the bottom of the kettle. Uh, they they act as a filter, which is nice, but they'll absorb a lot of the wort, the beer, before um, yeast is introduced. So you get a bit of a loss, loss with that. Um, and then they take up a lot of room. So, and like I said before, open the foliage. Pelletized hops, they look like rabbit food. And they, um, literally if you saw them, it's, it's the exact, exact thing. They, uh, 
are easy to store. They're all compressed, basically. They, they take the hops off the vine, they chop them up, compress them. So they have less surface to the air. They don't oxidize as quick. Um, they ship easier, they store longer. Uh, the only problem is they lose a little bit of the flavor through the pelletized version. And then um, they have a sludge on the bottom, which uh, they say is hard to clean out, but I know most people can do it pretty easily with a hose. I never had any trouble. You brew? Yeah. Oh. Did you ever brew? Uh, yeah, yeah I've know. been wasa. Not yeah, you know, you could clean them out. I've right? definitely cleaned it they out. They say it's... Uh, I remember when we used to make local acre, and we have a very specific memory. We have a uh, one of our head guys on the production is Dave Carr, and I have a very specific memory of him physically submerged in our whirlpool tank, <laughs> and it was like a hot tub of full cone hops. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, yeah, so, I mean, it's quite a cleanup, but... Yeah. Jumping in there, yeah, yeah. Not a shovel, the man, so. the man, <laughs> man way. Um, another one is extract, and uh, this is mostly used by large breweries, where they will um, isomize the oils and compress them. And so um, the advantage of that is um, they'll, they're very stable; they last for a, a, you know a long time. Uh, you just have, need a little volume. They're very compressed. And that is the bad thing about them. So if you're not brewing at Miller in one of their huge tanks, uh, you know, it's kind of hard to measure out exactly how much you're going to need for your batch to get the proper amount of bittering units in there, the characteristics. Um, then you have things like wet hops, where you can pick the hop right from the vine and immediately or within hours put it into the, the work. So the, the boiling work can get its uh, flavoring from that. Again, the, ad, uh, the uh, bad part about that is um, that uh, you know, the time limitation, again, it's gonna be absorbing wort, and uh, that you get a lot of the vegetative matter in that, and that can give beer some type of uh, uh, flavor. Uh, there's something new that's coming out and I really can't talk to you about, but I want to make you aware of it. And uh, that is debittered hop leaf. I looked at it a little bit and it is the, the breath, the outer leaf, all this in stuff, inside stuff is, is gone. And so it has no alpha acid flavor to it at all. No bitterness. It's all just... Um, Lupulins and um, yeah, um, they said uh, uh, they're they're good for making alambic beers. So yeah, nice. Yeah. <laughs> kind of throw that in there. So so hops come from different regions of the world. Uh, one, you know, you're going to have your continental or the the noble hops, and this is some of the oldest hops around there. Uh, those are mostly from Central Europe. Uh, smooth bitterness, uh, spicy floral aroma. Uh, they're generally used in lagers. So a lot of those European uh, Meritsens and uh, uh, Pilsners are going to have a no whole hop in it. Example are Technon, Hollitower, Spalt, and Saz. You um, have the British type of hops. Those tend to have low alpha acid, low bittering, and uh, aroma. And examples of those would be uh, 
East Kent Golding and Fuggles. They also have some high alpha acid hops such as Target and Challenger and uh, they tend to have herbal, earthy, floral and fruity flavors to it. Then you have the American hops and those tend to be bright, fruity, resinous and they're used in like American IPAs and pale ales which, uh, we're gonna be, which we have plenty of going on today. Uh, many are dual use uh, examples and we have three of the four here. We have the Cascade, Cent Centennial, Chinook and Willamette. Uh, they'll, you'll be tasting the first three tonight in the beers and the flavors being piney, fruity and spicy. So. Um, so hops are indigenous to certain areas. American hops are different than European. Yes. Okay. Yes, they are. So it's a it, it, it's a plant that grows everywhere, and, it, and just the they they take on the terroir, terroir terroir of the area. So you know some of the first American hops were brought over to you know by sure. uh, by settlers from from sure. England, you know and. Uh, but we've created hybrids, and, but they are indigenous, so you have okay. this whole, and so you'll have maybe a European hop mixed with American hop, and then kind of marrying the, the flavors of both of them together. Uh, so. Okay. So, um, see, we're coming out to number three right now, and this is our IPA, so that'll kind of segue into the next part of my talk. And that is about IPAs and how they came about. <laughs> yeah. And it's kind of an interesting story. You know, quite often, quite often you hear this, uh, the thing about, um, well, they put a lot of hops in this beer and they shipped it to India and they liked it and uh, they became IPAs. Well, there's always a backstory to everything. And this one is uh, Great Britain, you know, controlled the subcontinent of India. They had their administrators there. They had their uh, troops garrison there. And they needed beer. They couldn't brew in India because of the heat. They could only brew in Great Britain. Or they, uh, and um, the only way they could get it there was a long, hot journey. Um, but they sent beer over there. Some of it spoiled. Some of it... Uh, arrived okay. Um, as I mentioned before, uh, hops serve as a preservative. Alcohol serves as a preservative. And this wasn't anything new in the brewing industry. Everyone realized that you put a lot of hops, you put a lot of alcohol in beer, the beer is going to maintain its, its freshness for a long period of time. Now, for some reason, the, the Russians didn't want to brew their own beer, or the, the Tsar in Russia. He preferred to have the British do it. And so they created the Russian Imperial Stout. Again, high alcohol, a lot of hops in there. And that survived the long trip over the mainland, the continent, arriving in Moscow and in a fresh manner, too, because of that. So that science wasn't anything new. Um, and there were other beers in India too, including uh, porters and ambers. And so, you know, and they weren't really that popular. So you had this gentleman who ran a brewery, his name was George Hodgson, and he ran the Bow Bow Brewery, B-O-W, Bow Brewery, and was located on the East River 
east side of London, and it was close to a company called the uh, uh, the, the uh, East India Company, which did a lot of trade going to India, and. Uh, George was a pretty good businessman. He realized the importance of credit because the reverse of a ship coming from China is that uh, the ships that they sent to India really weren't making any money. And they had to go on to China and get the silk and the spices and then bring them back. And then that's when they could afford the, the initial uh, uh, load of uh, merchandise that they sent out. So George gave him a credit, I think he gave him up to a year and a half to pay, and his, the dock that he shipped from was close to the East Indies dock. So they were willing to do a lot of business. So what was popular back then was a beer called Oktoberfest Ale, and it was a fairly rich beer, it was a more of a higher echelon beer, and being familiar with the hops in it, he uh, sent that over, and the, um, the people generally liked it, but it was okay. But he kept on working with the, uh, his people over in India and tweaked the flavor of the uh, amber, uh, the Oktoberfest ale to the uh, Euro Indie flavors and to the taste. And um, basically created a beer, was willing to create a beer that they liked. Uh, he had the transportation, and um, uh, basically uh, India pale ales became popular. They already were accepted in, in India, so a world-class beer style did occur at that point. So, but uh, even once beer eventually died out in India, uh, the uh, gin and tonics became more popular, and uh, hot, you know, and hot tea. So, um, but. All through the life of the time that beer was being sent there, both porters and IPAs were were drinking there. So what it wasn't the just the only time period. Uh, Britain controlled India from well. They started. Uh, he was running the brewery around the late 1700s. His uh, sons took it over around 1823, uh, and then by the 1900s, the uh, um, beer kind of died out as a drink of uh, you know hot tea became more popular than beer. And then when did uh, India get its uh, independence? 1947, 48, 48? Yeah, yeah. So. so that's what we're talking Okay, so um, what we have is our pale ale, our version of George Hodgson's creation. And what we have in this is the, uh, uh, again, we have the, uh, the, the Zeus for the bittering. At the strike, we put in Cascade, and that gives you the floral, citrus, spicy uh, flavors. Uh, we dry hop with Cascade, Chinook, Citra, and Centennial. And so you also are, in the Whirlpool, we'll have Chinook, Citrus, uh, uh, Chinook, and um, Citra hops. And again, citrus, spicy, and pine flavors, and with a little centennial, which also gives you um, uh, citrus and uh, a lot of uh, spice, spice notes. So um, I think one of the characteristics of this beer is that you're going to get a 
grape, ruby red grapefruit, that citrus case from the flavoring and the, um, um, the dry hopping and the hops. Ruby red grapefruit, and you might get a little pine characteristic in there too. And that definitely comes from the, the Chinook hop that you get in there. 6.6% um, ABV, so it's a little bit lower than what you had with the, uh, the Denali. The IBUs are a little bit higher than 46, and Play-Doh is 16, so that's all pretty much the same. But again, uh, we this has been done very well for the brewery. It's the number one IPA in, uh, as far as sales in the state of Wisconsin, and uh, we're pretty proud of that. So, uh, and I think one of the keys for the success of this is again, uh, we don't we're not putting out hot bombs. We want to have a little bit more of a malt spine to it, and put that all together. And I, I think we call this actually a, a training wheels IPA. You know, when you're starting to go to IPAs, this is a good one to start out with. Then, like I said, we've had a lot of success with that. All right. So, how does all this work? How do these hop plants work? They're kind of crazy. So, let's some of the go more into some of the vocabulary that I have. Yes, sir. Uh. So at what point does like a pale ale become an India pale ale? Like I didn't understand like if there's a distinction at all or if it's just like branding or Yeah, you might consider a uh, India pale like a, a super pale ale. So soup you know pale ale so the previous one was like a pale ale at fifty five IBU, but this is an IPA at yeah. less than that. So I don't understand like how that's distinguished. Um, it is the Oh, the first one? The second, we, the second, the second one. one. Second one was an IPA, too. I'm oh, okay. sorry, the, the Denali, yeah, the shop series with the Denali was, was an IPA. <laughs> well, I probably didn't explain it. I think you're trying to, you're trying to distinct what the warm front The warm to, front was the pale ale. I mean, the warm front is kind of a little okay. confusing when it says extra pale ale. I yeah, think it has a lot to do with alcohol content and the malt bill added to it. Warm front is a lower alcohol out of anything we've tried tonight. It was yeah. like five, six. But there's no like established like if you're no. above 40 IBU, you're an IPA or like. No, good, good thing. What's the every style has style its uh, categories they gotta fit within. Okay. I so I'm. Uh, question like, what is an I difference between IPA? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's kind of the lines are so blurred right now. It's like a cousin, but one you would kiss. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> That's how close they are. I'm going to use that. <laughs> and how was Christmas at your house? <laughs> Weird. As per usual. But does it have yeah. to do with the amount of hops in it? Or, I mean, I don't know. It could do it all the time. I mean, good example uh, on another way of porters and stout. I think the, the line's really blurred. Sometimes I'll have porters that taste just like stouts. Vice versa. So. It's a very interesting industry. You got a lot of scientists and you got a lot of Bob Rosses <laughs> at the same time. So it's just kind of meeting middle ground. So everyone just pretends what they know what they're doing. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's a lot of happy trees. <laughs> <laughs> marketing, yeah, marketing there. Anyone else? What is your name? That is uh, Lakefront IPA, real oh, creative. Like <laughs> 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 or we'll, if you ever seen the logo, it's just a big eye on yeah, the label. Yeah, so yeah. We, well, 
is, it's referred to as the eye. So oh, what's all these terminology that I have here? So um, first off, you have the hot cone. And the hot cone has nucleolin glands in it. And these are pictures of the nucleolin gland. They are at the base of the bractolis. And those are the leaves on the inside of the hot cone. So the bracts are on the outside, the bractolas are on the inside. They're right at the base. Nucleon glands are at the base of them. The lupulin gland contains um, the loop, uh, humulins and lupulins. And the lupulin, the humulins. <laughs> and so the humulins have alpha acids, and I was referring to them before. And that gives you bitterness and preservative. And the um, alpha acids, the humulones, they will not be released unless they're isomized, changed chemically through heat. So you put the hops in the boil. So you extract this sweet porridge from the grain. You put it in the brew kettle. You bring it to a boil. Once it starts boiling, you put what's called your bittering hops in, and the, those are usually high alpha acid hops. Alpha acids are determined by the amount, the weight of the uh, humulants in, uh, compared to the weight of the hops as a whole. So if you have something that's like 10% alpha acid, that means 10% of the weight of that crop is the humulants. And they uh, give the beer the bitterness, the preservative, and they will give uh, a soft bitterness to the beer. There also are other humulones that are called cohumulones, and they will be uh, a little bit more of the harsh, bitter flavor. So when you're ordering your hop, you want to look at humulones that have that out that have a higher valuable higher value than the coal coal humulones. Also in the um, um acids are beta acids. So these are the alpha acids of beta acids and they really don't do too much but they tend to break down over time. The heat really doesn't affect them that much. And once they're in the beer, there's a, a slow breaking down. And so they will also uh, create difference in lager beers that are aged for a longer period of time. And then also the big beers that you might age. One of the reasons why the flavors change with those are the, the uh, beta acids or the lupleones that are in there. Um, then you have essential oils that are also in the gland and the essential oils are what give beer its flavor and its aroma and they are very volatile so you don't want to put them in at the beginning of the hot of uh, the boil because the, the the boiling will sort of drive them off 
those are mostly saved for the end and then also if you're going to be dry hopping and whirlpool what we do is uh, we uh, whirlpool our beer so and then we also dry hop it what that means is that we'll boil the beer the first hops that are in there are the, the bittering hops those are the ones that have the alpha acids the heat from the boiling wort isomizes the alpha acids and it gives you those bittering characteristics it's mostly flavor uh, then right when we're about ready to turn the heat off we'll put in the flavoring hops and that heat will release those um, essential oils and those flavoroids and then that gives the beer its flavor then after the beer is done boiling and uh, we're at the strike where it sits for maybe about 15 minutes with the heat off we'll run it through a whirlpool you'll have more hops in there that's the whirlpool hops and that is where you'll get a lot of the aroma after that it goes into the fermenters the yeast are introduced uh, it goes through primary fermentation where all the co2 is being created you don't want to put hops in there because the co2 gases will drive them out. We wait until their fermentation is done. Then we do what's called dry hopping, where they're added, and so you get more aroma and flavor. So uh, with, with our beers, I think you'll pick up not only the, the hop bitterness that you get in it, but you also get the, um, uh, a lot of flavor, more flavor, more aroma in the beer too. And. Um, Another part of the hop then is the, the brackets, brackets, and that's on the outside. That is where we have the, the polyphenols and the tannins, and those help in the boil by clumping on to the proteins, causing the proteins to fall out of solution, and that helps give you a, a clearer beer. It helps you eliminate chill haze, and then it will also help with head retention afterwards with the beer. Some of the things we're doing there, so I'll just pass a couple of these around. <coughs> and what these are are cell sheets for if you're going to order beer, uh, uh, hops, I'm sorry. And you can just sort of look at the <coughs> chemical ingredients, you'll see alpha acid, you'll see the percentage of that there. The beta acid, those are the ones that really don't do much, but until the beer starts aging a little bit. The cohumulones, those are the, the bitter ones. The alpha acids are the soft bittering, cohumulones are the hard bittering. Polyphenols, those are the characteristics that will uh, uh, clump onto proteins or elim eliminate uh, haze and then a help with the head retention and then these last uh, oils that they'll uh, describe here those are the uh, essential oils that's what gives uh, the hop plant its its aroma and its flavor Jim did you like chemistry in high school? No it's uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, I didn't, I couldn't balance an equation, a chemical <laughs> equation. <laughs> no, that wasn't my thing. I was going to save the world other ways. What got you interested in beer? Uh, Homebrewing. So the, the story is we're just basically two crazy homebrewers. And then once we started homebrewing, um, just 
got bitten by the bug. We were familiar with the craft beer movement as was developing on the West Coast and uh, started the brewery. My brother, he was an engineer, so he knew how to put a system together. And uh, he was able to cobble some old, literally old junk together to make a brewing system. We started out with what was basically a glorified homebrew operation. And, um, you know, because it was so small, um, you know, we were, it was like a part-time thing for us, kept on reinvesting the money back into it, buying more equipment, and grew slow, but sure. Very slow, but very sure. But uh, right now, what are we about? We're about 80th as far as the breweries, craft breweries are in the United States. And um, we're one of the very few that are uh, privately owned. Where there's no one else, there's not a, there's not other investors other than the, uh, other than my brother right now. So, so owner and president. So, and I am tour guide. <laughs> I'm a laborer. So, um, do you run tours every day? Every day, yeah. So we have food every day, and we have tours every day. Okay. You so can get married to my husband. <laughs> Actually, I would, because if you come get married or renewed your vows on uh, yeah. Valentine's Day, you mm -hmm. usually get a free six-pack yeah. of beer. Oh. So, opposite of what you said, I do, I do encourage, depending how desperate you are for a six-pack of beer, come get married at the brewery. Is it okay if I move on with the next yeah, why don't we try the next one? This is going to be the last one, and um, I just got uh, a couple more fun things. I just, I just want to talk about Wisconsin hops. So we got that came up. But the next one is our fixed gear, and this one both will showcase the hops, but it will also showcase the malt characteristic. Um, again, 54 IBUs, kind of up there. 6.8% um, ABV, alcohol by volume. Plato is pretty much the same, but what you're going to get is a lot darker beer. This is classified as a red IPA, so we're marrying with this the amber with an IPA, and it has the Zeus uh, and then uh, Cascade in the uh, the flavor, the Whirlpool of Chinook. And the dry hop is Cassage, Chinook, and Centennial. I think you pick up a lot of resin. I think you pick up a lot of pine with the fixed gear from those characteristics. And then you're going to have the darker malt, car, uh, dark 60 Lovabon Caramel, 150 Lovabon uh, Belgium, and Crystal Malt, which will give it that copper hue. So again, you would get an assertive hopping, but you're going to get an assertive malting in that. A lot of flavors going on. Uh, people wonder why it's called fixed gear, and that is because of the fixed gear mycin, bike mycin messenger that you might see riding around here uh, in town. You know, those are kind of uh, dudes and gals that are really out there and they're kind of crazy. They, they ride around weather like this, or if it's snowing or raining, and uh, they ride what's called a fixie or a fixed gear bike, you know, one gear. Uh, very durable bike, not much can go wrong with it. And uh, see, because this is like a, a crazy out there wild beer, we thought we'd name it after their, their bike. So that's how, <laughs> that's how fixed gear came about. So, so on, the, on the top center, uh, yeah. there, one of the categories was other. 
other. What would, was that just kind of anything that doesn't fit in there? Uh, other, well, I think it was other oils. I mean, the oils go on and on. So, you know, if anyone wants to do a PhD in botany, there's still a lot that hasn't been uh, understood regarding us. So, if you have a magnifying glass, this becomes a lot easier to read this thing. <laughs> But, but uh, what this shows, these are all styles of hops. And this is the um, IBUs. The, the darker ones on the bottom is the IBUs. The lighter blue is the alpha acid of the hop. And then on the top here are all those essential oils and the different characteristics that they uh, will impart. And the, so they'll go from um, other, they have on the top other oils, you know. And, <laughs> and, and so a lot of them, you know, like. just a miscellaneous. Yeah, that is. And they don't really understand, they know they're there, but they don't really understand what they do. And that's particularly true with the, uh, the, the, beta, the beta acid, alpha acid and beta, the beta acid. acid. There's a lot about that that they don't really understand. So, I mean, they know that uh, there are these uh, resins in there, but uh, they don't quite understand what they do. So, but you know, one will will give it um, unspecified characteristics. So, <laughs> so what we have is uh, other oils with unspecified characteristics, but then you get herbal and European. So that European kind of uh, showing the uh, uh, the noble hop characteristic. Uh, uh, herbal and European again for another one, uh, spicy and herbal, and then floral, citrus, and piney. So those are probably the characteristics you'll mostly get in American hops there. Oh, so when did hops come to America? When were they hops, the first hop plant was uh, in 1625. Oh. And it was, uh, and it was planted in New England. However, yeah, um, probably around that time. It was Jamestown, 1609. So, you know, some it was transplanted from um, or hops were the rhizomes. Generally, what you do is you plant a rhizome. Uh, it's pretty difficult to get a hop plant going from a seed. So, uh, they grow out as rhizomes, and um, they just you get a section of that, put it on uh, a hill, you build up some dirt on the on the ground, and stick it in there, and then. They are perennials, the flowering plants, they, they grow every year. So that's when the first hop plant came. Eventually, New York State became the top hop producing region in the United States. And to some extent, it still have, produces quite a few hops today. Um, however, the um, around 1860, a blight hit the hop, hop crop, hop crop, yeah. <laughs> I'm getting dry, and I haven't been drinking, hop crop in New York, and uh, you know, that was uh, a downy mildew, and a sooty mold, and the, the terms for that, yeah, thanks a lot, <laughs> mouth is sticking together. And the hop 
crop was pretty much diminished. <laughs> now, anyway, so hops were selling, you know, and this is in American time, 1806, uh, well, you know, uh, Civil War is breaking out, and, but uh, there was also quite a few breweries that were out there, particularly in uh, this part of the country. So um, the, the price of hops uh, shot up to about 700%. Eventually, the Civil War starts wearing down, troops start coming back home. Uh, these guys are looking for ways of creating money. Uh, they're coming to Wisconsin. They're realizing what a cash crop hops are. And so instead of growing the wheat and growing the corn, they said, let's grow hops. So they start growing hops. Uh, the climate in Wisconsin is good for it. Hops do well between the 35th and 55th parallel. And they, they took off and it just grew in Wisconsin at its peak in 1867 was producing 11 million uh, barrels, bales of, of hops a year. And that was up from, you know, being uh, in uh, 1847 about uh, 300,000 so barrel, uh, bales of hops. Years. So, unfortunately, because, uh, like everything, like every cash crop, they didn't uh, utilize uh, sustainable farming. They would plant the vines too close together. They didn't switch the varieties of hops. Um, and uh, they became susceptible to the aphids. The aphids gave rise to the downy mildew. And at that same time, the um, New York hop crop went back online, and so the price of hops just plummeted. So that pretty much, and by, by um, 1870, the Wisconsin hop crop was starting to go in its decline, and by the turn of the century, it was pretty much finished. And a lot of these crops, too, just picked up stake and they started going to the Pacific Northwest region, which has continued as the uh, uh, top domestic hop producing area for today. You know, Idaho, um, you have Colorado, um, uh, Washington, Oregon, a little bit in uh, California, but I guess that's disappearing. So uh, Yakima Valley, Willam Willamette Valley, big hop producing regions, yes. Where does Lakefront get its hops? We uh, do from all over the world. So we, most of our hops do come from the Pacific Northwest and we will use some um, European hops uh, if they're appropriate for style. So like we will be using a size hop. That's one of the noble hops uh, later on in the summer for the shop series. And we're gonna make a European Pilsner using that but uh, we'll, we will use those. And we will use local hops. So the other part of the story, <laughs> uh, around uh, 2007, you might have heard this, uh, that hops were starting to become scarce. There was a hop, a real severe hop shortage. Well, some local growers uh, around the country, particularly here in the, uh, Wisconsin, decided now would be a good time to create a hop, uh, hop farm. So they started, and you started getting hop cooperatives. So you have the Gorse Valley Cooperative. So they're kind of teaching and 
cooperative <coughs> farming, marketing, uh, you know, like uh, the pelletizing machines to make hot pellets are expensive, so the, the co-op will buy one and they'll be able to pelletize, or, or the hop vine pickers, you know, it's a very hard job to do that. Um, so as being in a co-op, they will uh, be able to afford that. So you have Gorse Valley, you have the Midwest Hop Cooperative, uh, Hop and Barley Cooperative, and you have the, the Midwest Hop Exchange going on. And the Midwest region is starting to regrain, to develop the, um, um, uh, the hop crops again. It would be pretty difficult to uh, match what is going on in the Pacific Northwest but they are on the increase, more acreage is going to them. And I'm happy to say that there is not a shortage with hops right now with brewers. So that um, uh, what a lot of brewers, about 85% of the breweries out there are now on contract to growers and that will ensure a hop supply for them. So hops are looking good going forward. There might even be a little bit of a surplus right now. The pr things you gotta look at are barley. Those, those fields are shrinking, so yes. Is there a, grow, is there a growing season for hops? Yeah, um, the, um, well, local, you know, locally here, they'll, they'll come, um, you know, in the spring, and then you, you pick them about September. Uh, different varieties mature earlier and, um, or later. But uh, the, the advantage of the Pacific Northwest is they might have a couple of crops that they can pull in. Uh, one, it's dry. So the hop farms are on the uh, east side of the Rocky Mountains. So they're, you know, not Seattle type weather. Yeah. They're almost uh, a, a dry desert type of climate, but they're in the mountains. So they have irrigation from the, um, of the uh, mounting ice caps. So there's, there's water supply for them. And uh, so because they're, they're dry, drier climate, they don't have to deal with the molds and the mildews that have uh, troubled the ones that were in the Midwest or in New York. So do you contract with individual farmers? We do, your, right, do? yeah, and we've been under contract for some time, so that's, that's really the way, you, so you lock in, you know, five years at a, a price and, and, and they know how much to grow and you can look forward as far as pricing is concerned. The growers like to float the balloon that the hops are scarce, scarce to drive the price up a little bit, but uh, you know, generally that's not the case. <laughs> do, uh, do you know how much hops are being produced in uh, Wisconsin right now? Uh, other than, the last number I saw was about 300 acres of hops. Wow, so, that's it. Yes. As a percentage of the total cost of the ingredients of beer, what? What percentage is hops versus the uh, barley or other, other components? Yeah, um, it would be less than barley because you don't need much hops. So you figure for uh, a pound of hops probably for a barrel of beer. And like a barrel of beer, I'm, I'm just going to guess right now might be uh, 100 pounds of grain. So it seems about Pound of hops for 100 pounds of grain to kind of equal out. Which translates yeah. to gallons. So you'd do 50, 50 barrels, you know, well, that would be 31. So what the pricing is now, I really couldn't tell you exactly, mm -hmm. but 
it it would probably would be less. So it'd be it'd be barley, uh, hops, then probably the water. But then you got to figure uh, utilities, equipment, employees, taxes. <laughs> you know, it goes on and on. So anything else? Well, if not, I'm going to be around here. Thanks a lot for your attention. Thanks a lot for coming. Uh,